Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Good morning and welcome to worship at Johns Creek Baptist Church. We are delighted, I am delighted that you are here today. A special welcome to our family across the hall in the Family Life Center. Um, For those of you that are under 18, I am watching and no one's Bible app has a flash on it. (laughs) To our guests and those streaming in live, thank you for joining us. It is a special Sunday as we begin July 4th week. And like Michael said, I am so glad that you chose to be here and not at the beach today as I was told to be here and not at the beach today. (laughs) But before we begin, uh, we're going to continue our exploration of the journey through Exodus and the people of Israel as they move through the desert towards Mount Sinai and get the Ten Commandments. I have to just share a little bit with you about our recent summer camp with the youth group. We got back Friday about 4 o'clock. And what a week it was. About 40 of our youth, 6th grade through 12th grade, came with us to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, because where else do you find Jesus but the land of banjos and funnel cake? And we had a great week there. Many of our college students and our young adults came to chaperone, along with some of our staff, like Mr. Nathaniel and Adam Courtney were there, and it was a great week. And the favorite thing for me to witness this week as the youth pastor was to see the different generations in just a short window of age interact with each other, from sixth graders to ninth graders to twelfth graders to our college students to members of our Roaring Twenty class to some of the younger members on our staff, seeing how everyone watched those above them and how to walk and what that meant to be a follower of Christ. But more importantly, the best moment for me this week was a conversation I had with one of our rising seniors, Connor Whitney, um, wonderful student, one of, uh, of John's Creek's own, has been here a long time. We were talking one night after worship, and he goes, man, they know my name. Said, yeah, I know your name. He goes, no, man, the, the sixth grader was like, I, I don't even know who they are, and they know my name. They know where I go to school. They know what I do, what I like, what I don't like. How cool is that, that they, they know who I am? I've got to walk so much taller next year when I'm a senior because I know I'm being watched. And that was such a beautiful moment to me to see the light bulb go off, not only in Connor, but the entire upperclassmen and our college students, young adults, to recognize the privilege it is as the adults and leaders in the church that they are being watched on how they walk, how they talk, how they call themselves a Christian. And it was a beautiful week to see them understand that and then live it out and take these young students who are learning to be adults and tweens and teens and what it means to be a Christian and have their own peers shepherd them through that. It was a beautiful week and I wish you could have been there, but you don't have to wish. You can come with me anytime to camp. The door is always open. There is no limit to adults that we will let chaperone 3 a.m. get back in bed, please, for Jesus. 
I'm just saying I would do it for you. So with that, let us pray and let us begin our exploration of the word this morning. God, we come to you this morning and we are in our best outfits, our hair and makeup and I'm wearing makeup, have been done and the songs have been sung and the stage has been set and we are here to welcome you and beckon you and invite you into the room. And God, we ask in this moment that you remind us that you were here long before the doors were ever unlocked. You were here long before the alarm clocks went off this morning, before the choir rehearsed, before the band played, before the lights were on, and that nothing we do this morning brought you into the room or brings you into the room. But what we come here to do on Sunday morning is a celebration of your presence and a recognition of your presence in our hearts. So God, we ask this morning that when we dive into your word and to your scripture that our hearts are right, our hearts are ready. And we understand that we are not inviting you into this place. But we are recognizing what you are already doing and recognizing that this is the time that you invite us into your place. That you invite us into your home and your heart into what you are already doing. So God, we ask that as we come into this room that our hearts are ready to be invited into the Spirit and all the mysterious ways that you will move this morning and this week. God, make us ready. Amen. This morning, we will continue our exploration to the, uh, the book of Exodus and the journey of God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the desert and the wilderness. And we come to an interesting point in the journey in the book of Exodus, and we've really just taken the first step after the pivot that happens around chapter 18 and 19, where they, the people of Israel, God's people, go from being slaves to becoming God's people. And that's an important pivot because the first half of the book of Exodus, half-ish, there's about 40 chapters, 18, 19 chapters of that, is getting them out of Egypt, getting them out of the bondage of Pharaoh, getting them out of the mindset of Pharaoh. We've explored that a lot as a church together uh, this year. And right about this point is the pivot where they start to become God's people. We have stopped deconstructing them from Egypt, and God starts rebuilding them up as God's people. And that's an important shift to make to understand what's happening here on out as we explore the book of Exodus. We pick up this journey in Exodus chapter 20 when the Ten Commandments come, and the people have made it to the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountain on behalf of God's people to intervene and exchange in conversation with God. So we find that in Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be starting in verse, verse 1. And hang with me because we will be reading the entire chapter. No Bible app has a flash. Verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth, beneath or in the waters that are underneath it. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love and kindness to those who, uh, 
to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But on the seventh day of the Sabbath and the Lord your God in it, you shall do no other work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And all of the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes, and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at the distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall stay the sons of Israel. You yourself have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me. Remember that verse. You shall not make other gods besides me. Gods of silver, of gods of gold, you shall not make them for yourself. You shall not make an altar on the earth for me. You shall not, I'm sorry, you shall make an altar on the earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it out of cut stones, for if you wield your own tool on it, you will profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, and that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. This is the word, word of the Lord. Let it be applied to our hearts and minds and understandings for the living of these days. We see in chapter 20, God take the shift of bringing his people out of Egypt and bringing them into communion with God. We see in chapter 20, the beginning of the commandments, the covenants, the, covenants, the instructions of what it looks like to be the people of God. When I read this, I remember uh, when I got married at our wedding ceremony, before, just after the vows were taken, hey, Sarah Bailey, Pastor Sean and another, uh, the pastor Sarah Bailey grew up with, Pastor Christopher, gave us instructions of what it looked like to be in communion together, of this new covenant, this new bond, of how you shall live. It is different than who you were before, and if you were the same person, it won't work. I've been married less than two years, and that is truth. <laughs> when you enter into a new covenant, you have to become a new person. When you enter into a covenant with God, you have to become a new person because the old person was not in communion with God. Therefore, the you that is now in communion with God cannot be the same because you are now in a covenant with something that will make your life different, make your life better. It will change the core of your person. And that's where we find ourselves in the Ten Commandments. And I'm afraid in 2018, that's not how we read chapter 20 of Exodus. 
we read chapter 20 of Exodus down in Thrive in Backyard with Pastor Andy, and we teach it to our children for how they should act and become young Christians and young adults as they come to the youth group, and then we launch them off into college. And we give it, give it to them kind of like a set of rules or boundaries and say, if you stay in bounds, you're going to be okay. If you stay in bounds, you'll get into a good college, you'll get a good job, and life will be good for you. And all that's true. These are good rules to live by. Look at me, youth. Do these things. Good ideas. But it is more than that. It challenges the very core of your person. And I'm afraid in 2018, we kind of like to treat the Ten Commandments like a church-wide game of never have I ever. If you don't know what that game is, do not ask a teenager and do not Google it. It's a, it's a fun game teenagers play, and it's never have I ever got a speeding ticket, never have I ever been to detention, and you know, really good things like that. They don't say bad examples. And at church, I heard laughter. At church, we kind of do the same things when we come to small group and Sunday school, and it may not be so obvious on the adult level, but I can see it in our teenagers. I can see it in our children where it becomes more about what you don't do or what you haven't done and who has less strikes. And when we read the Ten Commandments like that, it can be dangerous because we tend to read them in a way that gives us less strikes than the person sitting next to me. We tend to read them in a way that doesn't challenge us to change but affirms who we are. And we see that throughout the entire list of ten. Some are easier than others. Thou shalt not murder. Most of us in this room have not done that today. Most of us in this room have not coveted my neighbor's ox or donkey. Um, most of us, our neighbors don't have an ox or donkey. You may call them that, but they don't own one. <laughs> and we go through the list of Ten Commandments and see them as good rules and Four or five may apply to us today. And unfortunately, the first commandment we are given from God is the easiest one to pass off, to wipe aside, to say does not apply to me, my life, and my family in 2018 because it says you will have no other gods before me. And having a Western Christianity heritage, most of us having a, a Western Christian Judeo-European heritage, Having a monotheistic theology is all we know. Having only one God is something that does not come as a challenge to us because that's really that all that has been instilled in our psyche. We think this, you know, this may apply to religions of the Far East or other countries or other cultures, but here for most of us, having one and only one God is not a challenge. And that's probably true that None of us read this commandment and say, I've really got to stop worshiping the Atlanta Falcons. It's not... Sorry, sorry, Matt Ryan, Natty Ice. I got to chill it back a little bit. Because having a monotheistic, Michael, am I getting that word right? I'm tongue-tied, I've been at camp, I'm tired. A monotheistic theology is kind of our default setting. So we breeze right past the first commandment and move on to idols. Well, I don't have a gold dancing figurine in my house that I worship. I don't have a problem with that, and so forth and so forth. 
But in order for us to apply this to how we live our lives today, for this to be something in the covenant with God that changes who we are at the core of our being, we need to understand how the Israelites understood it. We need to understand the idioms and the culture and the context in which they read it so that we can then apply it to our lives. And in the pre-Deuteronomic understanding... Did I get that right, Michael? Maybe, was I close? Close. That's why he's the big man. In the pre-Deuteronomic understanding of this, so really the pre-AD understanding of this was not no other gods before me, but no other gods besides me. You see that in verse 23 as well. And it's no other gods beside me. Because remember, the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. They were surrounded and coming out of a polytheistic theology, a polytheistic culture. They were coming out of sort of a Greek mythology understanding of gods. There were multiple gods. There were multiple gods in Egypt uh, over and under Pharaoh. I don't know what they are, but they were pretty cool drawings and hieroglyphics. And there's lots of them. And they were coming out of a culture and a context and were surrounded by tribes and people who worshipped more than one god, had multiple gods. And God was bringing them out of that culture, was removing them from where they had been. And this is the first commandment they were given to become the people of God. So really the way that the Israelites would have understood this commandment is not don't have any other gods. It's I am the most high God. Have no other gods on my level. No other gods should raise to where I am. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning of the end. I am God, how you and I understand God. And we see the Israelites struggle with that a little bit and there's a learning curve and they get there. And that's what a lot of the book of Exodus is about. We see them build a golden calf and worship it and struggle when other tribes or communities interact with them. Because they start to stray, they start to question, does this God have something to offer my life that mine maybe does it? Does this God have a theology that might fit my life better than mine? And so God is really training the Israelites to understand, I am the God. I am the only God. I am the only thing in your life which you should sub subscribe this much worth to. And that's important to us to understand because if we read this as you shall have no other God besides me, that there shall be no lateral equal to me in your life, then maybe we can't swipe it aside just as easily. Now don't get me wrong most likely the majority of the people in this room are not struggling with other deities that they are putting on God's level. But I bet if we did a raise of hands, we could find out that there's a lot of things in our lives, mine included, that we raise to God's level. Not above God, but equal with God. And we struggle with that. And I think for us to understand that, we need to understand what Karl Barth said about the Ten Commandments. He referenced Luther. He's a famous theologian, much smarter than I am, almost as smart as Michael McCuller. And Karl Barth said, when he was talking about the Ten Commandments, so, so he's referencing Luther's theology on the Ten Commandments. The first, the first being the first commandment, states, You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? What are other gods? 
according to Luther, Martin Luther, we talked about him in October. Dr. Lloyd Allen came and did his in-person character. He was the start of the Reformation. So according to Luther's explanation, which coincides exactly with the biblical view, a God is that in which humans place their trust, in which they have faith, for which they expect to receive what they love and to protect them from fear. A God is that to which one gives one's heart. A God is that to which one gives one's heart. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, there are too many things in our lives today besides the church, besides Jesus Christ, besides the Lord our God, that we give our trust, that we give faith, that we expect to protect us from that which we fear, and for that, that we give our hearts. And we as adults, those of us in this room, those of us who have gone through the faith formation process and think we have it, it's easy for us to say that we can separate those, we can compartmentalize those. That I understand the difference between this part of my life and that part of my life and why those may be important and I give them as, enough, as much attention as I give God. I may give them more time than God. I may give them more of my life than God. I still understand. I, I know that God is more important. They, they may be on a level with God in my life, but I know that's not the case. If I had to choose, I would choose God. I know that work's not as important as God. I know that where I live and the, the presentation that I present to the world is not as important as God. But we give it as much time and energy. And while we may believe that we can compartmentalize that, or while we may, lie, we may lie to our own selves that we can compartmentalize that, it is not working for the young children across the hall that are watching us as Christians of how to be followers of Jesus Christ. I see it every week and every day as a youth minister that we are raising things so high in our lives that they have become equal with God that the children that we are discipling and that we are shepherding do not know what it means to be a Christian. And I don't mean that they don't understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They get that, trust me. There is nothing that gives me more faith in the future of the church than the zeal and the heart that these teenagers have for God. But the lives that we are living, that they are watching, are not ones that, pr that promote to them that nothing in your life should be more important than God. Or nothing in your life should be as important than God. In fact, I have ten times more conversations with teenagers who are struggling with their failures in the worlds that they can't rise to the level of expectations that we put on them, then they are struggling with the gospel. Every Sunday, every youth retreat, every Sunday night, every time that I'm around a group of teenagers, it happens. One of them comes to me, or I see it on their face, or one of their small groups tells, sweeters tell me that they're struggling, and they are consumed by the weight that the world has put on them, and I'll ask them what's wrong, and they say, Man, next year's my senior year, and I've tried everything I can, but I'm not going to make the varsity team, and I don't know how I'm going to tell my dad. Or, this is the season that colleges come calling, and they come looking for me, and not a single coach has so much as sent me as a text message. I'm a, what are my parents going to say? What is my identity now going to be that sports was a failure for me? 
And maybe it's not even the fact that they weren't good enough. Maybe that was injury or circumstances took it away from them. We saw a video about that last month and what happens to a teenager when what they have put in their lives is important because we've communicated that to them is taken away from them. They don't know what to do. And it's not just sports. Maybe they didn't get into the family college. Maybe their GPA doesn't start with a 5.0. Whatever it is that they feel is important isn't working out and we as adults in the church of Jesus Christ have communicated to them through our actions that that is where they should be putting their trust where they should look to protect them from fear what they should that's where they should give their heart and we may say that we can compartmentalize it we may say that we know the difference but is that just a lie that we tell ourselves so we don't have to let go of what's important to us? Because if there's one thing that I've learned in doing youth ministry is that whoever it is that you are at your core, whatever the truest version of yourself is, that's what the people that are watching you are going to see. That our teenagers have an incredible gift to see into you and to see into your heart and see who you are. And it challenges me because I can't put up a front in front of them and pretend to be somebody that I'm not. So it's, it's no surprise to our youth group that I'm not a perfect person. But it also needs to be a gut check to everybody in this church and the church with a capital C that you can't trick the generation behind us into thinking that you know the difference into thinking that while you may give something more time, more energy, more commitment, more value, more trust than God, that you know the difference. That you know that when the world is stripped out from under your feet, it is not to those things that you will run, but to God. That when you are in a time of need, that you won't go to those places, but to God. That when you are fearful, that when you are unsure, that when you don't know what your next step is, that you won't go to those things, but you will go to God. And it may be that we are so deep in that lie that we actually believe it ourselves. But we're not fooling anyone around us. And truth be told, I'm not sure we're fooling our peers. So my question to you today is... Where will you go whenever what it is fails? Where will you go when whatever it is that you put your time, your money, your commitment, your heart, your whole being towards, where will you go when it fails? Because it will. It's happened multiple times in my lifetime. I've seen the rise and fall of the stock market when things don't go well in 08, and my dad's business almost failed. I knew where he was going. Are those who watch you know where, they, where you were going to go? Because the conversation we had this week as a youth group, oh, we were away at camp, and you know, our, our leaders did an incredible job. Uh, Zach Balance like, was on fire with the gospel, preaching it into the lives of these teenagers. I, I had a sneak peek of what he was saying to them. And meant, if you want to hear a sermon, let Zach preach. 
But the conversation we were having this week with our teenagers is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be an authentic Christian? What does it mean for your outward appearance to be an inward reflection of who you are in Christ? And it starts with this commandment. It starts right here. Have no other gods besides me. Have no other gods that you give the same level of worth, trust, and faith into as me, the Lord your God. And you could see the wheels turning in their head this week as they grappled with what that might look like in the world. And you could see that they were, they were having to process so many lies and other messages that the world was giving them of what was important. And you could see that they have been trained and really sculpted that our outward appearance is what defines us. That as long as I could polish what was outward, that what was happening on the inside didn't matter. That as long as on Sunday morning I could put on my church outfit, go to church, and understand who Jesus was, I was not putting any gods before me, before, before the Lord your God. And the scripture that we leaned on all week of what does that look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the scripture that we grew with, struggled with, stretched with all week of what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ comes from the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came to his, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show them his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and chief priests and scribes, elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised upon the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Get behind me, Satan. You are, not, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. That is the scripture that we lived in for five days with our youth group. And what we talked about was how curious it was that Jesus rebuked Peter as Satan, just sentences before he said he would be the rock on which he would build his church. 
And we see in the first part of that, that dialogue, Peter, Peter is the first to describe Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ. He says, you are the son of the Lord our God. You, you are the Messiah. You are who you say you are. You have come to redeem us, set us free. You, you have come to take us out of Egypt. And moments after he said that, he begins to challenge Jesus. And we need to understand what's happening there so we can understand why it's important for us in our lives. So as we're going down the road, you can imagine Peter is following Jesus. Peter is listening. He is hearing what he is saying. And as he is following Jesus, he looks up and says, Jesus, you, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. You are who John proclaimed you would be. You were the one that they said would come. And as they continue to walk down the road, Jesus says some things that challenge what Peter has in his heart. He says that many trials will come by him and he, he will probably be killed. Well, if you know anything about Rome, if you're hanging out with a dude who's getting killed, you're going down with his ship. So Peter hears this and he, he, he leaves his place of following Jesus and comes up and says, Jesus, do not let it be so. He begins to challenge him, rebuke him, confront him, leaves his place as following Jesus Christ and puts himself on par with Jesus. He comes up and says, Jesus, this will not happen. Because all the times I've told Jesus it wouldn't happen, that went really well. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, because your interests are on those of man, not of God's. And when we hear Satan today in 2018, we think devil, horns, red face, pitchfork, bulldog fan, something along those lines. It's red and black. But the word Satan doesn't mean devil in the Bible. It, he is not calling Peter the devil. We see this in the book of Job when God is holding court and kind of basking and saying, look at my good servant Job, isn't he the best? And an accuser, a confronter, a rebuker, somebody who believes that they have the authority to challenge God and said, I think you're wrong, comes forth and says, and God addresses that individual as Satan, the accuser, the confronter, the rebuker, the one who believes that they can challenge God. And that is what we see Jesus call Peter in the book of Matthew. Not get behind me, devil, but return to your place in line, young man. Your place is following me. It is not your place to question where I'm, where I'm going, what I am doing. But your heart should be on the heart of God's and not the will of man. So my question to us today, church, is where are we in line? Where do you place yourself next to Christ as you're walking down this road called life? It's easy to say we're followers of Christ as we walk next to him. Where it's easy for us to divert, change our course, be in control, be in charge. But say that we understand the difference of putting another God beside Jesus Christ in our lives? Or are we being the humble service who fall in footsteps with Jesus to be authentic followers of the faith? 
And I challenge us with that today because I think it's too easy for us to convince ourselves otherwise. I think it's too easy for us to say that we know the difference of what we're doing. We know that while I may give more time over here, I know in my heart God's more important. While I may spend more money over here, I know in my heart that God's more important. When I may cling more tightly to this thing in my life, when the storms of the world consume me, I know in my heart that God's my foundation and God will protect me. And I charge you with that today because there is a whole room of students across the hall and in the basement in children's worship that need you to be followers of Jesus Christ so that they can be followers of you as they learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to be the ones in line setting the example, realizing they know our names. They know what I invest as important in my life. They know where I place my trust. They know where I retreat. And they're following me there. Whether you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, or just somebody who is a member of this community of faith, that means that you are family, and that means that there is about a hundred other youth in this church that are following you and how you walk. They don't, they don't need you to tell them what the gospel is. They know that. They know the Bible better than I could ever imagine or dream as a youth pastor. I brag about how well they know their Bibles. But they need adults in the faith that will walk tall and show them that there are no other gods in this world worth putting next to their God. They need adults in the faith that will put their faith in Christ and not themselves, not in the empires that they can build around them. Because all we're doing when we put our faith in ourselves is teaching our children that they are on their own to make it in this life and that if they do anything short of perfection that they fail. And we are leaving them without the safety net of the gospel to do so. Because when we call up other gods in our lives next to Jesus Christ, we are telling them that Jesus Christ is not enough for them. That Jesus Christ is not enough to protect them from their fears, to have faith in, to put their trust in. And that is not the gospel that I know. That is not the gospel that this church preaches. And that is not the example that was given to me as I grew up in these hallways. So this morning, we need the reminder that our work is not finished. That we have a generation behind us that is ready and willing to take up the torch but they need us to show them the way. We need more stories like Abby Hammonds, who had adults invest in her life, adults who authentically showed her, not told her, that Jesus Christ was above all else in their lives. And that is how we can change the world, and that, has, that is how we can continue to be Garters of the faith. Let us pray. God, we know that all too often that when you begin to come into our lives and challenge us and stretch us and call us elsewhere, 
that our initial reaction is to be afraid and to put up guards in our life, to, to put our mask on and pretend that we have it all under control. But God, this morning as we leave this room, we leave this hour, we have this time together as family and faith, we ask that your spirit allows us to be vulnerable enough to call ourselves Christians, to call ourselves followers of Christ. We ask that you make our hearts vulnerable enough to, to show others where we are imperfect, where we have our scars and our bruises from battle, and invite others into that imperfection so that we can point to you. We ask that you allow our hearts to be vulnerable enough that we don't have the fear and the need to build up empires around us to try and prove to the world that we are something that we are not. We ask that you make our hearts vulnerable enough, open enough, broken enough for you to intercede. Because God, we know, we know that there are no other gods beside you, before you, next to you, underneath you, or around you, but you are the Lord our God, the Messiah, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning of the end, the one whose voice boomed and called this earth into existence, whose finger ran across the horizons and called up mountains and carved out valleys. And it is that you who we should put our trust in, our faith in, that we should retreat to, that we should invest our lives in. And God, we pray that you make us vulnerable enough to do so and allow others to see it in how we walk. Because God, the world may tell us it is what is on the outside that's important. But we know that what's on the outside is not enough. That the covenant that you called us into at Sinai has to happen from within. And no projection from the outside of us of who we are what we are going to be, what we aren't, what we could be is enough, but that you just love us for who we are, that we are, nothing else. And we ask that we accept that promise from you today. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.